And today's burning question: What is the average lifespan of a hockey puck? Well, you know, I was just wondering that this morning. <laughs> and which planet has the most gravity in our solar system? Answers to those and other <laughs> questions coming up in this episode of the Off Ramp with Bob and Marsha Smith. to the off-ramp, a chance to slow down, steer clear of crazy, take a side road to sanity, and get some perspective on life. Well, Marcia, what could give you more perspective than thinking about the lifespan of an NFL hockey puck? <laughs> right? I mean, it's winter. You, you know, know I was we're just, here. I was just wondering that this morning. You know, <laughs> I wonder about, well, uh, an NHL hockey puck? Yeah, I'll, what's the average lifespan of I'll a bet, professional uh, hockey puck? Two hours. Two hours. No, it's not. Not measured in hours, not measured in periods, it's not measured in games. The average lifespan of an NHL hockey puck is just seven minutes. Oh, no kidding. That's all the longer they last, uh, less than a fourth of a period in a hockey game. Hockey pucks that don't fly up into the stands are removed from the game because they warm up from friction and Ah. bounce on the ice. So how cold should hockey pucks be? There's a temperature? Yeah, there's an average temperature. An average temperature? I'll say 26 degrees. No, the National Hockey League game pucks are chilled to minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit for maximum performance. Oh, And during games, they're kept in a freezer in the penalty box. No kidding. (laughs) That's where they are. Wow, I'm just learning so much here. It's fascinating, isn't it, Marcia? And that's what the joy of this show is. (laughs) The things you and I learn doing the research. Hope it's fun for other people, too. Some of it is, I'm sure. Okay, Bob, we know the moon has how much gravity? Uh, I don't know how much gravity it has. Is, zero? Is, uh, yeah, I think it's zero because they're bouncing around. Well, it has there. to have some or they would, they'd float all over the place. So, okay, yeah. well, it has l- less than us. Okay, so what planet in our solar system has the most? What planet has the most gravity? And I assume it's not the Earth. Correct. Okay, so would it be a small planet, large planet? Would it be close to the it sun? It would be we... the largest planet. Oh, you, really? You know the answer to that one. Like uh, Saturn nope. or Uranus? <laughs> Neptune? I don't like you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> nope, I'll tell you. Jupiter. It's the largest planet in the system. And if you were up there, you would weigh two and a half times more on Jupiter than you would on Earth. Oh, my. So I'm not going. That's just depressing just thinking about going. that. I'm just not going. I would be taking jumbo sizes and everything. This and weight just... loss stuff is hard enough. <laughs> it is. I can't imagine. <laughs> try to stand up. <laughs> try to do your exercises. Two and a half times what you normally weigh. <laughs> and that. Why? There's absolutely no reason to and, go there. And, and today's exercise, lift my leg. <laughs> <laughs> lift a finger. Okay, I've got a question about musicians here. Uh We're just going to be all over the map today. What do musicians Art Garfunkel, John Lennon, Paul Simon, and Ringo Starr have in common? Art Art Garfunkel, Garfunkel, John Lennon, Paul Simon, and Ringo Starr. uh, It has nothing to do with music. music. Okay, get a little more specific. Just give me something. They all have something named after them. Okay, thank you. They all have something named after them. A guitar. No. You'd think that would be something, although Ringo is a drummer, but 
That's true. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> now, each of these people, they each have a species of trilobite named after them. Now, trilobites are prehistoric ocean-dwelling anthropods, and these are recently discovered, and they were named after the rock god. So, Avalanchurus garfunkelis is named after who? Garfunkel. Art Garfunkel. A Lennon I is named yeah, after okay, John Lennon. That's not a hard. A Simon I is named after Paul Simon. And a Starry I is named after Ringo Starr. So John Lennon wasn't the walrus. He was actually a trilobite. Well, <laughs> fascinating. I thought it was fascinating, and that comes from That's a Fact, Jack, one of my favorite books. Is it? Okay. Late, lately, it's fun. Well, can you figure out why we say break a leg to an actor before they go on stage? Did you ever wonder why? Does it have something to do with a performance somebody had? Does it have something to do with John Wilkes Booth breaking well, his leg? That, that was a myth, but this phrase came about before okay. Lincoln's assassination. So if you say to an actor, good luck, before going on stage, it's perceived as anything but good luck because actors are allegedly very superstitious. Okay. And through the years, they have thought saying good luck is a brazen act of tempting fate. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, whatever you do, don't, don't do flop this, this yeah. line. <laughs> so by saying something totally opposite, you are not tempting the acting gods to uh, ruin your performance. Just I say, wonder why leg, though. What did that have to do with anything? I don't know. But the Germans, the ever-compassionate Germans, uh, have their own saying which I can't pronounce in German, but in English it means, may you break your neck and your leg <laughs> before you may go on stage. <laughs> they always got to one-up us, don't yes, they? Yes, they do. Those <laughs> kind and soft, <laughs> compassionate Germans. Always found that interesting that you and I both have Germanic backgrounds, and we're not that kind of people. Well, we don't know. We know a lot of nice, sweet Germans. Okay, speaking of luck, Marcia, what are the odds of winning a Mega Millions jackpot? Oh, I got one of those kind of questions today. What are the uh, odds of one... winning a Mega Millions jackpot? Is this like one in yeah, so one many? In okay, one in, one in uh, six and a half million. No, it's Six just million. one in 176 million. <laughs> <laughs> That's the odds of winning. Now, how slim are those odds? You're more likely to be crushed by a vending machine. <laughs> You're more likely to give birth to identical quadruplets. <laughs> identical quadruplets. You're more likely to become president of the United States or die in an asteroid apocalypse than winning a mega millions lottery. Wow. Keep that in mind when you're about to buy that ticket at the gas station. Well, I just I was just <laughs> hearing this story on the radio the other day about a guy. He and his wife always play the same numbers, same set of numbers, right? Mm-hmm. And all but one of his numbers came in, right? A couple of hundred dollars. So we went to cash in his ticket and he said, you won. And he's, what are you talking about? He didn't have his glasses on when he did the numbers. And he didn't see, he put in the wrong digit. And oh, the, really? And the wrong digit was the winning digit. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, so there you go. There's... So the best laid plan. So you, it's yeah. good that you didn't do the right thing. That's right. Okay. Okay, Bob. Do you remember your salad days? Yes. It... <laughs> yes, your salad days, which are your days when you're young, right? Yes. I say in your 20s, probably. You know. Well, it's a goofy expression. I assumed heck? it's like looking at life as a meal and your salad days and oh, you get your main a... course. And... No, but that's good. Uh-huh. You know who came up with it? No. First uttered by Billy Shakespeare. Oh, William Shakespeare. <laughs> yes. Okay. Let me enlighten you. He coined the expression and even explained it. In Act One, Scene Five of Antony and Cleopatra, 
It says, my salad days, when I was green in judgment, cold in blood. So it's before your <laughs> your hot-blooded days. Well, so, I think it's before you, you're you seasoned in your understanding of yeah, things. So, so your green in judgment means yeah. you, you're wet behind the ears. Yeah. You don't know everything. So that's why he came up with salad days. It was he that first penned it. All right. Now I've got another show business question for you here. All right. What was unusual about Sean Connery's first performance as James Bond? What was unusual about Unusual. It? Give me a little more Something specific. unusual about his appearance. Ah, uh, he had, uh, I don't know, he was wearing contacts? He was wearing something. He was, <laughs> Sean Connery. Sean Connery. Ah, <laughs> uh, jail, okay. He was wearing a toupee. <laughs> oh, was he really? He was only 30 years old, but he had to wear a toupee to hide a receding hairline. No kidding, I didn't know that. That movie was Dr. No, and that was the first of four Bond films for him. He went on to 60 more years of filmmaking and uh-huh. uh, died at the age of 90 with 63 films to his credit. But when he was 30, he already had yeah. to wear a toupee. Wow. Handsome young guy. All oh. right, here's another show business question. Yes, bring it on. All right, Jerry Seinfeld. Remember Seinfeld, the series? Yeah. Actress Liz Sheridan played Jerry Seinfeld's mother. What was an unusual fact about her background? Liz Sheridan played Jerry Seinfeld's mother on Seinfeld. Yeah, I'm trying to picture her. And what unusual, again? Someone she was romantically involved with. Oh, was it like uh, Ben Stiller's dad or something? No, this is when she was younger. She was once engaged to James Dean. Oh, okay. <laughs> really? Yeah. I never her name knew was, he uh, got engaged. Liz Sheridan, and she was once briefly yeah. engaged to and, James And Dean. I said Ben Stiller's dad because uh, Jerry Stiller was in Seinfeld, so I thought maybe they had been engaged once. Well, James Dean, I never knew he was engaged. Yeah. Well, here's a question you probably never pondered, Bob. Okay. What is considered probably the largest item on any menu in the world? <laughs> What's the largest item on any menu in yeah, the world? Are you talking about cost? Si- no, size. 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 It comes to the table. This is something that you octopus. You know of octopus? Uh, no. Okay, I had octopus once. Yeah, was it large? It was big. Big? Did it? <laughs> no, they had it cut up. Cut into up. Pieces. But yeah. this is this is the whole ball of wax here. I don't know, Marsh. What okay. would it be? It's a roasted camel. What? (laughs) Which is sometimes served at a Bedouin wedding feast. The camel is stuffed with a sheep carcass. Good Lord. Which in turn is stuffed with chickens, and the chickens are stuffed with fish, and those fish are stuffed with eggs. I always wonder, why does something have to be stuffed with something? Isn't it good enough as it is? And apparently the answer is no, not for a camel. Can you imagine a whole roasted camel coming to your table? (laughs) I have a, it seems odd that Bedouins who depend on camels would kill camels and eat them. Well, I I mean, you know, know, people did not eat horses very often. Oh, I bet they did if they were hungry. Well, if they were hungry, but horses were like a beast of burden, but a friend, so to speak, you know, I mean, people didn't think of, it's kind of odd. Well, and then to stuff it with all those things. Well, it got to fill it up. Think about the hump. <laughs> you got to put some stuff yeah, up there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay, I found that uh, particularly weird. Okay, okay Marcia, two <laughs> geography questions for you. You love geography. Oh, I No, you don't. <laughs> what is the world's largest island? World's largest Well, is it The world's largest island? New Zealand? No. 
What's the answer? Greenland. Oh yeah. Greenland okay. is eight hundred forty thousand square miles in size, which makes it the world's largest island. And for comparison, it's three times the size of Texas. Okay, That's yeah. That's how big Greenland yeah. is. Speaking of Texas, this object is visible from space and is half the size of Texas, but it was built by microorganisms in the ocean. What is it? Say again. This object is visible from space. It's only half the size of Texas, but it was built by microorganisms in the ocean. It's a coral reef. That's something? exactly what it is—the Great Barrier Reef uh -huh. of Queensland, Australia. It's uh, 132,974 square miles. Score one for Mrs. Smith. They build slowly an underwater home, and this one is so big you can see it from space. After thousands of years, the Great Barrier Reef includes more than 2,000. 900 individual reefs and 900 islands. It's formed when colonies of coral polyps secrete hard exoskeletons made of calcium carbonate. <laughs> this just goes on beneath your eyes. You don't pay attention to these things. All of a sudden, you've got something that's 132,000 square miles <laughs> under the ocean. And you can see it and from space. And you can space. see it from space. It's well, fascinating. That makes sense. I'd love to see it from space. Half the size of Texas. Okay. Okay, we're done with Texas. What's your question? I got a golf question, Bob. Okay. Not your core strength, unless we tie it to a president, of course, or something. <laughs> <laughs> Why do we refer to golf courses as links? Oh, that's a good you question. You ever think of that? Links. Why would they? I don't know. What is, what's well, the... What's the link there, Marcia? The word links is a Scottish reference to the coastal strips of semi-barren land between the ocean beach and inland farming areas. This link land was too sandy for crops, so that's where the Scots put their first golf courses. Otherwise worthless, those narrow links of land became valuable as golf courses. I'll be darned. And those were the links between uh, those two areas. Okay, I think it's time we took a break, Marsh. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob. And Marsha. Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, we're back. I'm Bob. I'm Marsha. And we're here with The Off-Ramp. Okay, Marsha, I have a history question. We talked about George Custer a we show did. ago. Was General Custer outgunned or outmanned at the Battle of Little Bighorn? I thought he was outmanned. That's what I thought, too. But it's a little bit of both. Estimates are there were as many as 3,000 Indians who fought the 7th Cavalry's 197 men. Jeez. You are really outnumbered there. But while 80% of the Indians had traditional weapons, which are clubs and lances and bows and arrows, there were far more firearms brought to the battle by Native Americans. I didn't know this, did you? No. They did field studies shortly after the battle. Now, the 7th Cavalry soldiers of Custer were armed with the Springfield Trapdoor Carbine Model 1873 and the Colt Single Action Army Revolver Model 1873. So those are the two guns the soldiers had. But physical evidence indicates the Indians used Sharps, Smith & Wessons, Evans, Henrys, Winchesters, Remingtons, Ballards, Maynards, Stars, stuff? Spencer, Enfields, and Forehand and Wadsworths, as well as Colts and Springfields of other calibers. Their weapons even accused repeaters, while Custer's weapons were single shot. You couldn't just fire more yeah. than one. Well, where did they get all these? They the English? bought them all over the place. They had yeah. them. You know, they, 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 they the traded with people. The local ammo store? They traded with people. 
There were 2,361 cartridges, cases, and bullets recovered from the battlefield, which came from 45 different types of firearms, but at least 371 guns. And apparently Custer had been suggested that he use machine guns and bring them, Gatling guns there, but they decided not to take them because they were too big and they thought they would be difficult, but they may have helped in the battle. I would think, but jeez. Fascinating thing there. All right, Bob, quickly back to golf. What are the chances, the odds of you, not a pro, of you hitting a hole-in-one on a regular golf course? Uh, like one in a million yeah. or something like that? Yeah. No, no I'd say one in 200,000. It's uh, one in 12,500 hmm. on a regular golf course. It's one to 2% chance that you would hit a golf ball that far. The longest hole-in-one on a tour in Scottsdale was a par four. It was by Andrew McGee in 2001. He hit it 332 yards, hole-in-one. That's amazing. And and even if it's only, what did you say? One in 12,500. 12, that's still mighty strong that's odds, big, mighty big, difficult. big, bad odds, yeah. Okay, people often ask for advice and often just ignore it, right? <laughs> but... Uh, this advice was given to a famous artist, and he took it literally right down to the point of what the words the man said were. So I'm going to ask you this. What advice did an art dealer give Andy Warhol for being famous? Paint the obvious? No. Andy Warhol, he'd become a well-known artist in New York in advertising. I was going to say, his work was very Condé Nast, yeah. he'd produce covers for LPs and yeah. books. And as magazines were turning from illustrators to photography, his income was declining. His name was Andrew Warhola at the time, Andy oh, Warhol. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. At one point, he told an art dealer, I want to be as famous as the Queen of England. What was the art dealer's advice? Okay, tell me. You've got to find something recognizable to almost anybody Something like a can of Campbell's soup. Well, he did do <laughs> yeah. it literally. Holy camoly. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Like I said, usually people, yeah. they, they take advice, but they don't take it that specifically. Yeah, and he did. And I hope he gave that dealer a cut. I hope he did too. And when he sold that sucker. Well, that was in 1961. So here's something you'll find interesting. Why do we call gossip or unimportant information trivia? Hmm. <laughs> Why do we call gossip and kind of ephemeral stuff trivia? I don't know. What's the answer to that? Well, it goes back to the Romans. They were big road builders, right? Mm -hmm. And they called the area where three roads came together a trivium. T-R-I-V-I-U-M. Okay. Meaning three roadways. At this three-road intersection, traffic would always slow down considerably and congest, and it gave the people time to exchange light gossip and meaningless conversation, and thus the birth of trivia. <laughs> so they would stop and get congested and start blowing the breeze. Yeah, just start talking to each other yeah, at hey, the yeah. trivium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the discussions became known yeah. as trivium trivia. or trivia. That, yeah. That is good. And... Uh, Went on from there, right down to our show in 2021. Think about it. And here we are in February, and we're still thinking a little bit about the inauguration. I am, and I have or a question. Or inoculation. <laughs> no, I'm thinking about that, too. <laughs> An inoculation. Yeah. Uh, all right. Now, we know that um, the uh, Star-Spangled Banner is the nation's official anthem. But what's unusual about Hail Columbia? That's the official song of the vice president. Hail Columbia. Vice president has his own song? Yes, her own song. I'm sorry. 
Oh, yes. Laura, there's wow. a little bias. How wow. interesting. Yes, the vice president has her own song, and yes. it's called Hail Columbia. Uh-huh. What's unusual about that? Okay, what is it? Originally, that was the American national anthem, Hail, Hail Columbia. Columbia. It served as the unofficial national anthem before the Star-Spangled Banner was formally adopted. Now, when was the Star-Spangled Banner made the official national anthem? How long have we been singing that as the official national anthem? I bet it was later than uh, you think. It was later than you think. I'm I'll surprised. I'll say 62. No, it was 30 years earlier, 1931. Okay. Oh, okay. And then that's when Hail Columbia began being played to honor the vice president. Music trivia. Okay. <laughs> From the Guinness Book of World Records, in 1991, the biggest tumor. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, no. <laughs> was removed. From an unnamed woman at the Stanford Medical University, how big was it? Oh, this is just it's like disgusting, big, like a isn't watermelon it? or something. It's in terms of weight. How heavy was it? Ten pounds? No. More? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> what? 306 pounds. What? Yes. Three feet wide. How could a woman have a tumor that's 300 pounds? Well, that's the question. How and could how you, could you not know? How could you hide that? I don't it, that was just, I know it was gross, but it was... What kind of a dress would you have to wear? <laughs> Moo baby, Oh, Moo-moo. man. Oh, yeah, I know it was gross, but it was interesting. It is gross. <laughs> All right, this isn't gross. This is kind of fun. Here are three questions I'm going to ask you about the first electronic message sent around the world. Okay. The three questions are, when was it sent, who sent it, and how long did it take to travel the globe? Was it somebody like uh, Gates or... Uh, Wozniak? Was it Wozniak? Oh, I see. From uh, Apple Computer, yes. No. Uh, Who sent it? uh, Was it a president? No. When was it sent, and how long did it take? All right, gets enough. (laughs) Tell me the answers to all three. Okay, this message sent around the world. That was the message. Uh It was sent by Telegram in 1911. Who sent it? The New York Times. Oh, really? To see how long it would take? Yeah, it took 16 minutes. It was sent by a dispatcher for the New York Times. They wanted to know how fast a commercial message could be sent around the world via telegraph cable. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, and it was all done via cable. So it was cables all around the world. The message left the 17th floor of the New York Times at 7 p.m. August 20th, 1911. It headed west. It was relayed by operators in San Francisco, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Saigon, Singapore, Bombay, Malta, Lisbon, and other locations, and was received by the same operator in the New York Times offices 16 and a half minutes yeah, later. Yeah, boy, was I on the wrong track with that one. I was going digital. I should have well, thought of the telegraph. It didn't even occur to me. Yeah, I always love using that term because you say electronic message, yeah, and nobody yeah. thinks of the telegraph. No. I mean, no, like Lincoln was no. the first president who sent an electronic message. Yeah. 16 minutes, that still seems pretty fast, doesn't it? I think that is amazingly fast. Mm -hmm. Okay, now here's something uh, I'm going to finish up with, and we're getting back into your wheelhouse, the Three Stooges. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm not a Three Stooges person. (laughs) Between 1930 and 1965, the three jolly pranksters were in how many feature films? From 1930 to 1965? Yeah. I bet they did 30 films. 22. Wow. Can you name any of them? Yes, The Three Stooges on Mars. There That's the go. one I saw as an eight-year-old. <laughs> there you go. I had my dad take me to that one. <laughs> and later on, I'll let you recite all 22 of them, because I know you know. <laughs> oh, jeez. Now, we talked about that first message, electronic message in 1911. 
NASA launched the Voyager 2 satellite, which took off with a phonograph record that had messages for extraterrestrials if it would encompass them. Uh That thing is still speeding out there in space at 34,000 miles per hour. And what was the form? A disc. A disc. On that same day, 66 years later. That is pertinent because just Friday, February 12th, NASA reestablished contact with Voyager after a year in which COVID caused difficulties communicating. Voyager 1 and 2 are still out there in deep space, and they're still communicating back. There's actually a team of people who are all in near retirement who've worked on that program. They're in their 70s and 80s now, and they're still working for JPL in Altadena, California on this uh, this mission, these missions. They're able to actually communicate and operate the equipment. So how long does a message take to deep space, 12 million miles away from Earth? When they send a message yeah. to Voyager 2, how long does it take? Uh, 17 minutes. No, 35 hours. It, t- <laughs> Jeez, it takes love- 17 hours and 35 minutes each way. So when a message goes out there and comes back, it's 35 hours total wow. round trip. Yeah. So bring me a glass of water isn't going to cut it. No, there. no, no. <laughs> wow. Now, both of those spacecraft hold the records for the farthest a spacecraft has ever traveled. The computer on board has got the uh, power of a 16 gigabyte cell phone today. That's all the more power it has. They both were powered by plutonium, so they've got Mm. plutonium on board. But they have to keep switching things on and off to keep the power from going down too far. Oh, interesting. Because they want these things. They may last for 50 years. Wow. These things have gone past all the planets. They're all past Pluto now. And they had pictures of eight active volcanoes they sent back from Jupiter. So they are discovering things about our solar system and beyond. Yeah. Very Very interesting. I'm going to wrap it up in honor of Valentine's Day with three romantic quotes. Okay. First is from Catherine Zeta-Jones. For marriage to be a success, every woman and every man should have her in his own bathroom. The end. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. I think so. (laughs) I I, I go along with that. Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Mm -hmm. She said, you'll never forget your first lover, so try to make it someone you won't regret thinking about the rest of your life. <laughs> and uh, here's Julia Roberts. You know it's love when all you want is that person to be happy, even if you're not part of that happiness. And I believe that. That is true. It is. That is true. Is no, there that's... anybody like that in your life that <laughs> you're glad that they're not with you, but they're happy? Or you're glad that <laughs> you're happy that they're not with you? I don't know no, which I one. I think you're going down a rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, <Bob>. Okay. <laughs> the... Uh... <laughs> Sorry. And if you have a question you'd like one of us to give to the other person, a question and an answer, submit it to? Our website, theofframp.show, and go to Contact Contact Us, us. (laughs) and you can leave a message. Several people have done that lately. Yes. I have to say hello to Susie Miller, who's out there, who I used to work with at Studley's Rexall Drugstore in Lawrenceville, Illinois. (laughs) And Susie, uh, Miriam Miller, she sent us uh, a message last week. You never did answer my question. Is there somebody out there that you are glad they're happy, but they're not with you? Uh, No, I'm with the person I want to be with. Oh, that's a nice thing to say. Oh, it's true. Okay, and now that's it. That's (laughs) That's, it for the day. Get out while you can. (laughs) What? Get out while you can. No, the show. Oh, oh, okay. Well, it's it's on a good trajectory (laughs) here. You're scared there for a minute. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, that's it for today. We hope you've enjoyed this and hope you had a good Valentine's Day. Yes, and may all your tumors be small ones. Oh, dear. (laughs) 
I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. And this has been The Off-Ramp. Oh, dear. <laughs> that gross. Oh, my dear. The Off-Ramp is produced in association with CPL Radio Online and the Cedarbrook Public Library, Cedarbrook, Wisconsin.